everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That's true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. You can find Author Magazine at authormagazine.org. We're funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Conference, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. We just wrapped up our little mini uh, pop-up conference, we called it, called Polish Your Manuscript. Got to meet some folks there. That was a lot of fun. Virtual conference. Ah, good way to meet with people sometimes. Oh, I miss the in-person, but it's good to be able to do these quick uh, virtual ones. We did that, so that was a lot of fun. And uh, hey, it's good to be back with you all now. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving if you celebrate that holiday, as we do here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, it's good to be back, gearing up for the old holiday season, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, yes, another good interview with Erica Miner. Interviewed her before. She's re-released one of her books. We got together and talked. She's a musician uh, and a wonderful writer, wonderful person. So we had a great conversation, of course. Uh, former Metropolitan Opera Orchestra violinist Erica Miner is an award-winning author, lecturer, screenwriter, and arts journalist. Uh, her debut novel, Travels with My Lovers, won the Fiction Prize in the Direct from Author Book Awards. Her screenplays have won awards in the Santa Fe Win Famine Writers Digest competitions. A resident of the uh, Pacific Northwest, Erica is a top speaker and lecturer in opera and writing in addition uh, to pre-concert lectures for the uh, Seattle Symphony. Erica regularly presents at Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of California, San Diego and University of Washington, Creative Retirement Institute of Edmonds College, Wagner Societies and Boston, New York, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, San Diego, North Carolina, and New South Wales. As a lecturer in writing, she has presented for the WOTS Fields End and the Los Angeles Writers Conference. Like I said, we had a really nice conversation, and I'm glad I get to share it with you now. Enjoy. All right. Well, look at this. We've got Erica Miner back, back on the show. Erica, how are you doing? I'm great, Bill. How are you? It's so great to see you again. Yeah, it's real nice to see you too. I, you were on the show. We were just reminiscing, trying to put our dates. It was a few years ago. Erica has an unusual background. You know, I mean, kind of unusual that she you started as a very serious violinist, right? Not violist, but violinist. You were violinist, yes. Yeah, I mean, it, and you were in the Metropolitan Opera. You played. I for was. The, for yeah, 20- so I mean, yeah, you were operating kind of in uh i wouldn't say the stratosphere but up in the upper echelon of of orchestra musicians for sure indeed and certainly for as far as opera orchestras that was the pinnacle so That's it was it, a yeah. milieu let's yeah say. and i think we talked about that some in our first conversation i'm always fascinated by it I, i'm always fascinated by people when you're having to not just i'm i mean i'm a amateur musician myself and i love music and um and i know how much how challenging it can be and to be not just moving from music to the written word which is so different in so many ways but to be operating amongst people who are because i would think everybody at the metropolitan opera has to be cut from a certain mental cloth to be able to have the discipline to to hone their craft enough to get there, whether they're singing or conducting or playing the oboe. Yeah. It's absolutely true, but it's not just that it's, 
what happens as a result is a huge conflict in personalities. Yeah, because everyone's a big, everyone's got to be, everyone's ambitious, right? Everyone is really good at what they do. Everyone is used to being, sort of reminds me of like professional sports. Like when they when people move from college to the pros, it's like you've always been the best one on the field pretty much. And now you're one of many, yeah. <laughs> right? Is that, is that, um, that stay true? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the egos keep you going as far as who's going to take precedence over whom. And uh, it it's in every echelon of yeah. the field. Yeah. Know, there's like a thousand people working there and they're all at odds with each other. Well, plus your performers. I mean, I, I did. I have some background in theater also. Not on that level, but your performer, your whether you're an, a, a musical performer uh, or, or a singer, your part of your personality is wired to be not the center of attention, but to be in front of people doing your thing. Absolutely, being that not afraid, you can't be afraid of the spotlight. Nope, right? and never changes either. Right, and so everybody wants to spotlight. So I think it's very challenging. And so you write mysteries, and it's, so we talked when you had you had your staged for murder murder mystery series and now you've moved on to the julie kogan opera mystery series but both of which deal with with uh the julia kogan excuse me excuse me um new series but both deal with theater and murder and a theater of some kind whether it's opera or stage and uh i have to believe that not only do you, does your background for with the metropolitan opera lend all this verisimilitude to it but just you must have been inspired by the figurative backstabbing <laughs> to maybe write about literal backstabbing. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair, but it's not just the figurative backstabbing. That's there are actually nefarious goings on back there, um, both in actually in front of the curtain and behind the curtain. And it was also those events that inspired me to think, okay, well, if this can really happen, it can happen in fiction and I can embroider right. it and, you know, work with it and, and use my wicked imagination to concoct something that people will really like to read about what goes on back right. there. Right. And, um, okay. So I, I should refresh our readers our listeners uh, memory. You moved from, music to writing what was the what was the impetus behind that well actually i had always written since i was a kid even before right. i started playing the violin right so it was always uh, happening yeah it's i was placed in a special program for creative writing when i was maybe seven or eight and whoa, whoa. i yeah i discovered some teacher must have seen a spark of something right and i discovered that i just loved to tell stories to to create plots and characters and weave them all together. And I've loved telling stories ever since. So even when I was at the Met, I kept taking writing classes whenever I could. Wow. And I kept writing. And it seemed after I, I left the Met, it seemed the logical next step to go back to that passion for writing. Did you just fatigue of it with the, of the, of the, the life of, of the, of an or of the orchestra or did you, or was there something else that, compelled you to leave there was actually something else although one does get pretty burned out after yeah. 
20 I would think, yeah. What happened was that I was in a car accident. That's right. You know, that's what it was. I remember this. What's interesting is I interviewed you and an oboist in like rapid succession. And so I was trying to remember who left because of the accident. It was, and, and it involved your hands in some way got hurt, right? Yeah, there was a lot of uh, soft tissue damage that just couldn't be repaired. Right. And when you when you play at the Met, you're playing sometimes eight hours a day. And it just yeah. became impossible. Yeah. So. All right. So, but look at you, life, you just, you're, you're like a, a rubber ball. You bounce back and you find a new expression that you've been working on. It's been toiling away. But all right, so we talked about the Staged for Murder series. And so we've got a new series now. And that the Staged for Murder came out largely during COVID, yeah? Yes, it did, right? In the oh, man, that's a bitch, isn't it? It's just tough, isn't it? It was bad timing. What can yeah. I say? Yeah, yeah. Talk about that, because I, I had a book come out smack in the middle of it, and I realize it didn't do as well as I wanted, but I couldn't talk to, I wasn't in front of anybody. And so much of what I do is I speak to people and that just wasn't happening. I know that affected the sales. Yeah. Well, not only the sales, but the printing. was a Right, right, right. There was a shortage of paper. Everybody got backlogged. And the same thing I assume happened with my publisher, my, my former publisher. Yeah never really explained what was going on and kept promising to bring it to print and i was able to do uh virtual book events and everything. right when is print coming out and yeah. i couldn't get a commitment so finally here's something a resource you may or may know or not know about called the washington lawyers for the arts i did not yeah. know about them an incredible incredible group of attorneys who are committed to helping out people who write and paint and create as artists and they will give you um a pro bono 30 minute consult nice nice you know if you're having problems and i was having problems all of my um sisters in crime and various other colleagues get your rights back and find another publisher and i'm like how do i do that and they're like Washington lawyer for the arts. Oh, that's nice. So you got your rights back to, you got you to the Julie Kogan opera mystery. So the next, you got your rights back to them. All my rights back and then started over and looked for publishers. And how was starting over? How was that? I mean, how'd you feel about, were you like, God damn it. I'm sick of that. Or were you a little more enthusiastic about it? No, absolutely. I was like, I can't believe I'm here again. Right. And starting from scratch, it felt really discouraging that mm. on top of, you know, the pandemic and everything else that was happening. I I really had to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Luckily, I had a lot of encouragement from my yeah. fellow writers. You know, here in the Pacific Northwest, we have such a wonderful. Support. We do. We do. So they kept encouraging me and I kept looking and I lucked out. I found a publisher called Level Best Books who already had a series of ballet mysteries and Ah! mysteries. Ah! And they said, your opera is going to fit in perfectly. And I'm like, yeah, it sure sounds that way. So they offered me a three book contract. I just out of curiosity, like what was the mechanism? How did you search for the publisher what did you do were you working with an agent were you working independently and if you're working independently how did you what did like where were you looking because you're looking for small presses obviously yes yes i was looking for a small press um but i was also looking for 
um, a publisher who understood the arts. Yeah. And that's kind of a, almost a needle in the haystack. So my, my one word answer for that is research, research, research. I just yeah. went online. I looked at every publisher that I could find within certain parameters. And I also uh, kept in touch with various other websites like authorpublish.com. Mm -hmm. You know about them, they publish a weekly newsletter where they tell you which um, which publishers are looking for non-agented submissions. I did oh. all of that. I just combed right. where I could find. And I found Level Best Books. And inter interestingly, through an opportunity where just out of dumb luck, I forget which uh, newsletter it was, but they said, um, would you like a choice between having the consult with A or B? And I'm like, sure, I'd love it. And so I chose Level Best and I FaceTimed with the publisher. Oh, nice. She's from New York. She understands opera. She's been to the Met. She really was, wow. totally, you know, she totally got what I was doing. And we got on like a house on fire is what they say. And <laughs> next thing I knew... I had a contract, so a lot of See, it was not a lot, but it was determination too. You know, I I, I do think it's determination, but I, this is a, this aspect of the writing life always interests me, Erica, because I do think, and perhaps you don't. It's hard to to articulate, but it's something I write about, which is it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to do the research, and I'm not going to give up, but you do have to maintain a level of belief a level of optimism or else all the searching in the world won't amount to anything. I mean, you know, I'm sure you had days where it was frustrating, but it does require a certain mental position to go through that and have the patience and believe on some level that you'll find the right person, the right publisher. I, I absolutely agree. And I think the belief system stemmed from the fact that I had these stories to tell. I had this series which had great stuff in it, which had fans and readers who enjoyed it so much and i i couldn't give up on that like right. this really needs to be out there it's homeless right. for now but i was just convinced i would find a home for it and voila here it is yeah well that's and so when and so it came out in october so it's been out for did it come out in october it came out on october 28th all right so it's been out for just a few weeks now yeah yeah it's still very new as of this recording uh and so how have you been able to do any kind of event or anything? Uh, that's been an interesting kind of, uh, here's a little bit of a side. Um, in the middle of all this, in the last few months, I had um, not one, but two major hip surgeries. Ah, uh, so, Erica. So yeah. yeah, what can I say? I'm a glutton for punishment. All right. So that me meant that I couldn't do anything in person, but luckily I have a lot of other resources to do things virtually with wonderful people like you. And I'm actually having a virtual uh, book party this Sunday online. Oh, nice. Inviting a lot of people. And uh, so I'm getting out there virtually. And yeah. as of January, I'm happy to report that I have an event at Third Place Books in Yay. Forest Park. Yep. In so by then, you know, I will be ambulatory and um, and I don't know if you know David Schlosser, but he's going to be interviewing me. He's a well-known local author. I don't know David. That's ah, one more person I got to interview, apparently. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's just terrific. Really interesting guy. And um, 
we kind of had a lot of sympathetic vibrations going together nice. at uh, a Sisters in Crime event. And so he's going to be interviewing me. And so it's January 11th. Everybody's invited. Mark it down. Lake Forest Park. I've done a couple of book launches there. It's a, I did a, I used to do all my interviews there. I love the Lake Forest Park third place books. For those of you up here in the Seattle area. Well, the, oh, so this is good news. You see, don't give up. Don't give up people. Uh, well, so, all right. So you, you've got, and this book is, so this series is written. It's written. And yet not. And so here's another part of the right. journey, part of the explanation. So my publisher, my new publisher, Level Best, immediately said, we want new titles, new ah. covers. We want new plot points, updates, and changes out the wazoo. And so ah. I was working really, really hard to, first of all, I found a new title, Aria for Murder. I'm calling it the Julia Kogan Opera Mystery Series because she is she's the same protagonist, but yet she has changed in so many ways. And people who have read the book so far have all commented on how much I've enhanced her character and made her much more sympathetic and um, and spirited and all of this. Ah, so you've uh, you either it's a combination of your own growing skill as a novelist and perhaps some uh, incisive editorial support. Yeah, absolutely editorial support, but also I had to do updates because when I wrote Murder in the Pit. It was a number of years ago. Things at the Met have changed a great deal. Oh, okay. So I was able to reach out to some of my Met colleagues and ask them things like, okay, how do you get in now at security? How is that? <laughs> what do people do? Right. Is this still there? Is that still there? You know, it's all completely updated to be as contemporary as possible, which also resulted in a number of changes in the plot points as well. So it's reading in a whole different way and i started nice. out with a, a prologue to kind of you know make it in give it a thriller aspect about yep you know the the mounting excitement of uh, and suspense of what to expect so it's, nice. it's quite different and all three novels are going to be quite different as well all right well, that's good so you're are you still working on the next two i'm working on the next two i've decided on a title for the next one good but i'm just focusing since the book just came out a couple of weeks ago and fo focusing on promoting it and letting people know about it. And even people who read the original will have some really interesting uh, insights on the changes and what they think about them. And it's all, it's, it's a really exciting, totally, it feels like a totally new journey. And by the way, who writes a book in a rehab facility? Yeah. That's right. No. Oh, you're actually in a rehab facility. Well, Good I work. was. Yeah, when, oh, okay. when it was due, when the um, when the manuscript was due, I was sitting, you know, in this skilled nursing facility on my laptop writing. So, wow. no, it's <laughs> it's not exactly what I accepted, but hey, it's certainly different. You know what? You that's you just got to you and the writing. The writing maybe helped you heal. The writing maybe brought in some good, clean, creative life-giving energy maybe it accelerated the healing ever so slightly uh, there's no doubt about it writing itself i've always said is a very very healing thing in yeah. every possible way but for me at that point you know i mean i was working my my butt off you know trying to get to be mobile again yeah and 
that consumed so much energy. But then at the end of the day, I had these hours where no one else was going to disturb me. And I could just sit there and really, I literally had my computer read it to me as I started making changes. You know, you can do that. Nice. uh, Nice. You know, with an Apple computer. So it was fantastic, really amazing experience. And evidently it worked. Do you have, um, do you find your readers are people who love opera and mystery, that it is a crossover in those two enjoy both genres? Or they just happen to be readers who say, oh, doesn't matter whether it's opera or gumshoe or whatever. It's kind of a combination of both. Uh, Certainly people who love mysteries and know nothing about opera are intrigued by the whole concept of what can go on. And I can tell you, if I can even give you a a brief story, true story. But what can go on in those theater is a very dangerous place. And a lot of people recognize that. Certainly after reading this book, they will recognize that. Yeah. So I really played upon that to intrigue people as to the possibilities of, yes, opera. I don't know anything opera, but I'm intrigued. Or yes, mystery in an opera house. I love it, you know. So it, uh, it seems like a pretty wild combination that is appealing to a lot of people yeah there is something about performing where you know they uh, comedians in particular talk about dying because if it goes poorly but there is a sense of that the egos have to deal with what happens if it doesn't go well when you are up there is you feel so exposed as a performer and it feels like there's it feels like there actually isn't but there feels like your whole life is on the line when it's when you've got to hit the line, hit the note, do the run, whatever it is. And it can feel life and death. It isn't, but it can feel that way if you, if, if, if uh, you let it. Yeah. Well, most of the, most of the time though, there's an adrenaline going that makes you feel really positive about everything, you know, unless somebody like falls off the ladder in the middle of performance. Right. Right. But, uh, it's it's very much the same in the pit. Even though we're in the pit, we're visible to anybody who's up in the balconies and the you know those areas for sure. But visibility, it's it's not all about that. It's about the right. fact that if you're the greatest opera orchestra in the world, you have to be perfect. Yeah. And if you make a mistake, everyone will know it. And so that there is that pressure and that kind of. I don't under, I do not know how you guys do that, man. Because I play instruments and it's like. I'm going to make a mistake. It's going to happen. Like there is just no getting around it. But I know that I remember Yo-Yo Ma talking about, he said, I once did a perfect concert. I did it. It was perfect. And he said, what? now it's on to something else. But <laughs> more than once, I'm sure. But I, I just, the pressure of it. I remember George Plimpton, like, you know, he would go around doing all these things and write about it. And one was playing, I think the triangle or something in an orchestra. And he said, it was just counting down, the days as the performance neared until when he would hopefully not make a mistake. Like that was how he had framed it entirely in his head, which is not how you can think about it. No, you can't, especially if you're a string player because you're playing constantly. Yeah. uh, You you know, there's no margin for error, but that's also something that creates a certain amount of neuroticism. Uh, The way I describe the Met Orchestra is, 100 neurotic musicians thrown together in a hole in the ground with no air and no light seven days a week. Uh, <laughs> you see more of these people than you see of your own families. 
sooner or later, someone's going to want to kill someone. And that, well, I, of course. And though I would say when you're playing, I would, the one time I played with an orchestra, I played the flute with an orchestra. It was just one performance, but the feeling of the whole orchestra of being a part of that was really something, just the sound of it, the feel of it, my one instrument contributing to it, but certainly, you know, not, there was other flute players there. And so there, that was quite lovely being a part of something that big, you know, it definitely is. And when it happens and when it happens right, and you have a great conductor up there with a great orchestra, there's nothing quite like that feeling. It's one yeah. of the, just one of the greatest feelings in the world. And you do feel proud to be part of that ensemble, whatever is happening between you and the person next to you or what happened right. that you came in for rehearsal, whatever it is, when you're up there performing, the audience is there, their expectations are sky high and you yep. deliver no matter what and it's a yeah. thing. and so now you write and there is hardly a more solitary art form than writing uh everything else and you know you have editors but that's you know it's not the same as being a part of an orchestra or a band or show so do you miss the collaborative nature of it or are you really happy to be all by yourself uh, it's a little bit of both. I do miss the music. I, In fact, that's one of the reasons I started doing lectures on opera, because right. I love the music so much and I want to share all my experiences with it, right. with people out there. Um, so I do miss that. I love the music so much. I don't miss the egos. I don't miss the conflicts with my right. colleagues. Right. Um, I don't miss that at all. I, I miss some of them, the ones that I was close with. But being solitary and being able to create stories that I know, hopefully, lots and lots of people will enjoy. That is the most rewarding thing of all. It is. You know. And do you miss the, I remember Jerry Seinfeld once was talking about, I mean, he loves the laughs, obviously. And he's like, here's my, here's the thing, my nightmare, writing a book, you write a book. And then you don't hear like, there's no applause. There's no laughter. I mean, you might go do a reading someone because of, Hey, I read your book. I really liked it. Is that to me, I don't get it. And so you do miss the, I just finally got back out there and did some live events, you know, lecturing and stuff. And I was like, oh man, I did a bunch of Zoom events. It's not the same to have a room full of people and doing my thing. It was great. And so I did miss that. And I love to be able to connect in that way. So do you, and so did, but you are able to feel the satisfaction of sharing your work, even though there's no applause afterwards. Well, I do. Uh, there is applause actually after my lectures, which makes me lectures are one thing, but the books like you finish the book and there's no crowd going, Erica, you did it. Oh, great sentence. No, that's why you have to get out there and say, please write me a review. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> uh, that that's kind of the applause you get, but you also get lots of great comments, especially on social media from people yeah. who read your book who really enjoy it. Their comments mean everything to me. Oh, it's do they? So reward oh, yeah, absolutely. So rewarding uh, makes all the difference. It makes me want to keep writing. In fact, after I wrote the, the original first book, it was one of my fans who said, so what about a sequel? Right. <laughs> and he, it. And he oh, said, oh. a sequel at Santa Fe Opera. I'm like, okay, I hadn't thought of that, but that's what it turned out to be. So my uh, readers are really, really important to me. Yeah. Yeah, it is nice to... It is nice when we forget, but that, that a perfect stranger 
finds it somehow. I just saw someone on Twitter had found my book out in Kansas City and was like, was inspired by it. And you have to, it, I, I sometimes feel like the only people reading are people I've shaken their hand and said hello. I know that's not the case, but I forget that there are just people I'll never know out there experiencing something from the work I've done. And so when you hear it is, and it's nice to know, I don't know if you can feel it or not, Erica, but the sense that your story has come alive in them sort of independent of you. I know you put the words down, but you know, there's something that happens that's separate from you within the reader's imagination that you only started. Does that make sense? Uh, I absolutely agree. And this is again, where the comments come in to be so, because there are insights and observations about what I've written that haven't even occurred to me. Yeah. They'll, They'll say in a certain way, that I'll be, oh, wow, you know, I hadn't even thought of that, but I'm so glad that they experienced it on that level. Whatever um, resonates with them, it's all good for me. That's right. That's right. I always think of them, I think I was talking to somebody recently on this show where I said, or I was liking it to raising children, which is like, you know, you raise the kid and then they go and you don't have any, their, their, their life has got not that much to do with you, quite frankly. And the book is kind of like that. It's like, it's going to go off and make its own friends, yes. you know, go on its own journey. Yep. And you yes. sent it out there, but then it's on its own after that. It has a life of its own. And that's also the experience of screenwriters say the same thing, yeah. you know, you just, as, as soon as you get it out there, then you know, it's no longer your baby. It's everybody else's. And, um, you know, it all works for me. I'm I'm just delighted to be on this journey and I feel very lucky and I'm excited about connecting with other people who find something intriguing about mystery and opera and the combination thereof. Well, that is a uh, good attitude, Erica. Attitude of excitement and appreciation. This always leads somewhere good. If people are excited and appreciative about you, and best is it ericaminer.com, M I N E R E R. Yes. Erica. I'm like a minor key. This is no, minor in a hole. <laughs> I'm the coal miner, having yeah. worked in the mines for 21 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in fact, uh, if anybody is interested in coming to my book party this Sunday, Oh, Just yeah. go to my website and there's a link where you can sign up or send me a message and I will uh, send you the Zoom link. I'm really nice. excited about, you know, seeing old friends, meeting new people. And I'm going to do a reading from the book and we're going to have music and, ah. and all kinds of and prizes and fun stuff going on. So, All right. Yes. Yeah, so check it out at ericaminer.com. And uh all right. Well, listen, I probably asked you this question before, but you know, it's interesting. Sometimes the answer changes, Erica. It does for me. So I'm going to ask you again, if writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? If writing has taught me anything, it's taught me that I love telling stories and I love being able to share those stories with people who love to read. And that has been kind of a theme that's been going through my whole life. And the great thing about writing is that you can keep doing it until your last breath. That's you know, right. I mean, if you can write a novel, you know, in a skilled nursing facility, you can do it anywhere at any time. And it's the most rewarding, wonderful feeling to know that people are enjoying what you write. 
And so that's what writing has taught me. That's great. That's great. Erica, congratulations on the reboot and good luck with it and the series and all the stuff you're going to write afterwards. Thank you so much, Bill. It's so wonderful of you to have me back on the show and a pleasure as always. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again in the future and I'll keep you posted on what's happening with the sequels too. All right. Thanks, Erica. Thank you. Till our last breath. Yeah. Yeah, we don't, writers don't retire. No, we just die. That's right. And I'm okay with that. I am perfectly okay with that. Why would I want to stop this? I can't think of a reason. I can't. Well, glad I got to share that with you. I want to thank my producer, RJ Jeffries. Thank you, my friend. To all of you out there, you know, you just got to find something you love to do. There's so many things you could do, but you got to love it. There's nothing better than doing something you love. So go find something you love to do and do it.